Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Rob Richardson. Rob is a software craftsman building web properties in ASP.NET and Node, React, and Vue. He's a Microsoft MVP, published author, frequent speaker at conferences, and a diligent teacher and student of high-quality software development. Welcome, Rob. Thanks. It's great to be here. Would you give our listeners maybe a little introduction to yourself? You could you know, tell them how you got started in the industry. Yeah, this is such a fun story. Um, I was 10. I was in the library. I was playing with the computer because they had one and it was so cool. And the way this computer worked is you'd go to the desk and you'd go flip through the book. You know, they had laminated pages You'd pick the next game, they'd give you the disc, you'd go plug it into the machine and fire up that game and play that game. So I finished this game and I went up to the desk and I um, turned in my game and I flipped through the book and I picked another game. It was a drawing program. And I said, I'd like to play this game. And they handed me an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And the top two thirds was a graph, you know, graph paper. And the bottom third was how to draw that on the computer, you know, 10 print, blah. And that was the game and I played that game for hours. And I'm like, I'm so done with all the other games. I want to write code. From that on, it was like, I just want to write code. It's so fun. I got into college and I'm like, this code thing is cute and all, but now I need to go get a real job. So I started studying other things. And then I realized that computer programming could be a career. So I pivoted back over into computer programming and now I get to code for a living. It is so much fun to get to play at work. Speaking of that, uh, what are you doing these days? I'm doing a lot with, um, I'm a developer evangelist for uh, Single Store, a database company in San Francisco. So I'm doing a lot with YouTube videos and publishing GitHub repos and building out interesting scenarios using their database. It's really cool. Add to that, I get to do a lot with Docker and Kubernetes, you know, containerizing applications and being able to fire them up so that um, demos can work really well. And I still get to do a whole lot of teaching at conferences and at user groups. The cool and annoying part about uh, COVID is I can't travel. But the interesting part is um, I get to speak all over really quickly. So uh, this week, I will be speaking in China and in Cairo and in Tel Aviv. And at the end of the hour, I unplug and I'm back in my office again. I don't have to you know, take the flight to the other spot. That's pretty cool. So we're just one week after .NET Conf at the time of recording. I know that you're big on ASP.NET and do a lot of speaking and, and teaching those types of things. Was there anything in particular that, that you caught during .NET Conf or were you able to, to watch and attend virtually? I actually got to watch a little bit. I spoke at .NET Conf. I did a really cool session on uh, getting started with GitHub Actions and Kubernetes. Um, a lot of times we take our app and we're, we just kind of push it up to Azure and we go, ta-da! <laughs> but, um, you know, let's build up a DevOps process and let's, you know, do all the things. 
The cool part about GitHub Actions is it is completely free for open source projects. So uh, starting the demo with just an empty terminal and building up the app, you know, .NET New is amazing at being able to scaffold an application. Then we live coded a Docker file, pulled in a Kubernetes YAML file, pushed it all up to GitHub, built the GitHub Actions uh, DevOps pipeline and push go and watch this site published to Azure Kubernetes service. It was so much fun to do that. Yeah, using YAML is how you know that you're, you're cloud native these days, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what's really cool coming in .NET 5, it's kind of the um, bringing together all the .NETs. You know, we had .NET Framework, we had .NET Compact Framework, we had Xamarin, you know, formerly Mono. We had all of these different things. And so .NET 5 is kind of like the unification of all the things. And that is really, really cool. In the web space, we were kind of more or less um, blessed with all the things. You know, .NET Core has run cross-platform since .NET Core 1.0. So, you know, running a web server on IIS is just as easily just as easy as running a web server inside of Apache or inside of a container. So, from that perspective, it's like glad you all could join us. <laughs> But what's really cool in .NET 5, there's a whole lot of speed improvements, which is really, really cool. Span of T is becoming the de facto in all the things. We've got um, the null, nullable reference types is now a thing in all the things. So they uh, tagged all of their, all of the Microsoft source code so that I can correctly identify when uh, pieces will return null and when they won't. That's been really, really cool. Uh, also in ASP.NET 5, it now includes OpenAPI, the swashbuckle templates by default. Mm. So I get documentation of my API straight out of the gate. Uh, I would always include that, but then it was always like, okay, let me go find the blog post and go figure out how to include <laughs> all the things. And so to have it now built in, it's like, yeah, OpenAPI is a thing and we can all just leverage that. Yeah, on, on our Wednesday night streams, we do some working on our personal projects and, and live coding on Twitch. Uh, one of the personal projects I've been working on is a site called Speaker Meet, and it's a .NET Core backend or or was .NET Core backend with a React front end. Uh, during .NET Conf, I downloaded the the latest bits, pulled down the Visual Studio preview before the yeah. the release was out, and and converted the the API. It was another test bed for getting more familiar with GitHub and GitHub Actions. So I uh, got to to make the changes there in order to push my uh, API changes up to Azure. I had to go, I went into the portal and was looking around. I was like, wait, the, the .NET 5 bits aren't there. Not realizing that they're not listed as .NET Core, they're listed <laughs> as .NET. And yeah. um, so it, it's, it's amazing how much went out during that week, how many things changed, all of the bits. Oh, yeah. And all of it so far in, in doing these conversions has been almost without incident. Agreed. And, you know, by comparison, .NET 2 and .NET, or .NET Core 2 and .NET Core 3, it was a while before those were available on Azure. And, you know, we could hack up some things uh, with deploying binary, deploying bins with our um, application. But to be able to just on day one push up all the things, there's a lot of horsepower that went in to make that happen. It's impressive. Yeah, you, uh, you talked about... Um... GitHub uh, Actions. Could you talk a little bit more of that and and how maybe uh, I'm I so that's one thing I haven't really gotten into. I know that there's sort of like a new push, uh, you know, uh, with the, with those actions. 
Uh, but like, how do they compare to something else like uh, Azure Pipelines or or something else? That's a really great question. Digging into how does GitHub Actions compare to something like uh, Azure DevOps Pipelines? What's really cool is GitHub Actions is actually a fork of Azure DevOps Pipelines. And so if you're familiar with building the YAML build files in Azure DevOps Pipelines, it is pretty much the same. Hmm. There's mm-hmm. a few interesting things like um, we'll, there's more of a reliance on branches. They're more visible. And some of the um, snippets that I'll pull in, the YAML um, things from the marketplace are named ever so slightly differently. But uh, DevOps uh, pipelines YAML builds are pretty much the same to GitHub Actions YAML builds. The cool part is you can also just shell out to you know a Bash shell. I was doing my build on Ubuntu, but if you're doing your build on a Windows agent, a PowerShell shell, and at that point, you're just writing PowerShell. And so at that point, every build server is pretty much exactly the same, whether you're using Jenkins or Cruise Control or TeamCity. Um, you know, if you can run build.bat or build.ps1, mm-hmm. then the build server is almost irrelevant at that point. It's a cron job watching my GitHub repo and kicking off a process. Yeah, absolutely. And then what's the story about like, uh, as far as like the ease of getting what you, you know, it's one thing to build it, but like getting it to be deployed out there into uh, AKS or into um, a VM or you know, Azure or something like that. It's actually really smooth. And that's where the integration with the um, marketplace works out really well. The GitHub Actions Marketplace, and I don't think that's a great name, but it's a list of plugins. So I can search for things like I want to do a Docker login or I want to deploy to AKS or I want to deploy to Azure App Service or I want to deploy to AWS. And I pull in that little piece of YAML, that GitHub plugin, and configure it in the ways that are meaningful to my app. And that allows me to connect into the thing. When it gets to that step in my build file, it does it. And so instantly it, it goes up to wherever it needs to go. Is that you know pushing a branch to my um, GitHub pages branch? Or is that pushing a repository a Docker container into my Azure container registry? Or is that pushing a zip file up to Azure Web uh, Azure Web Apps? You know, it's kind of elegantly simple in the transparency that it has. It's really cool. To that end, a GitHub Actions is a really open API. They did a big thing, I believe it was in October, of building a bunch of GitHub Actions, and so everyone was just hacking on building these GitHub Actions. So there's a lot of plugins that you can pull from. Well, so it, it's really covering sort of that full spectrum of the the continuous integration and continuous deployment uh, possibility. It, it, you know, right there at your fingertips, right built baked into the the platform where you're going to be hosting your your source code and and whatnot. Exactly. Um, one of the things that was kind of interesting in DevOps pipelines was they had in their first revision, a very separate experience for building and deploying. And so you had to grab your asset and save it off in a thing and then pull it back out. In their YAML experience, those two kind of blended together. And that was really cool. I just get to the next phase and I have all of the things and I just flip over into pushing it out to another resource. So that has carried through into GitHub Actions. And so 
one of the steps is building and one of the steps is pushing and one of the steps is a kubectl apply or uh, swap the slot on Azure. Yeah, that, that seems to be the direction that um, I think people are going with DevOps as sort of combining those two phases together into one big pipeline. Um, there's a lot of upsides to that because you, you know, the configuration for those things are all baked into one and you change that configuration. But there's, there is also some downside to uh, if I make a, you know, if I make a change to my release, I have to do a whole new build again. Um, fortunately, we keep the builds pretty short. But uh, you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts on, on keeping those separate or keeping it together? It depends on the complexity of your project. And if you just have a really light project where you don't have a whole lot of environments or your build doesn't take too long or there aren't very many steps, then having them all together can be really helpful because it's just a simpler metaphor to, to do. But uh, switching over to the other side, it's like, well, that means that I need to rebuild for each environment. I don't want to change the code between dev and test. And in particular, I don't want to change the code between pre-prod and prod. I just want it to go. And that's where Octopus Deploy has a really elegant paradigm there. Mm. And so with Octopus Deploy, I can publish my asset as kind of a superset of NuGet mm -hmm. that includes the manifests involved in what it takes to deploy it. And so I publish my asset up to Octopus Deploy, and then I'm able to promote a package from one environment to another without changing anything. At that point, Octopus Deploy can merge in any uh, XML or JSON configuration changes or environment variables or configure the IIS site a little bit differently. And so at the point where I reach that level of complexity, that's where I'll pull in Octopus Deploy because it is a great tool to separate those assets. The closer I got to containers, the more I was like, well, the end of my build pipeline is to push my container up to my registry. And that's kind of the end. So at that point, deployment happens completely outside my DevOps pipeline, outside of you know deploying to the first environment. And so at that point, I'm like, well, I've kind of gone back to, I really don't have a build that is complex enough to need that separation in most environments. But when I do, that's where Octopus Deploy is so beautiful. And uh, now that Octopus Deploy has a free tier again, it is really, really sweet. Okay. Okay. We've been, so we've been doing the, I think it's, it may have come out of preview, but uh, the Azure Pipeline's multi-stage branches um, to be able to do that and have that sort of similar promotion. We're using Docker containers. So again, our build just creates that Docker container, but then the, the next stages are basically promoting that, that container up through our different environments. So very similar. And we used Octopus before before moving um, to Azure Pipelines um, uh, for a very similar, same basically mechanic. Um, so right. that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I haven't seen anything like multi-stage builds in GitHub Actions. I know it's there, but I just haven't needed to reach for that level of complexity yet. And it seems these days that a lot of what we are doing when we are building and, and and publishing, deploying these things, the, the binaries themselves don't necessarily change between environments. It's more configuration. It's resources that they that the applications communicate to and with, and and using things like uh, Key Vault or or something like that to to manage those those keys, those connections, those those secrets, right? 
Exactly. I'm just identifying which key store I'm authenticating to, and I'm identifying which server I'm logging, which database server I'm logging into, and which Azure Blob store I log into to save off my images. And the application itself is stateless and identical in all the environments. I just need to be able to get those little pieces. When I get into single page applications, into SPAs, the environment variables that I want to set there need to be set in the browser. And that's where that gets a little bit weird. And so sometimes when I'm building out a SPA, I do end up with different assets for each environment. Now, there's ways to avoid that. But the moment that I get into course headers is the moment that, yeah, the SPA needs to build for each environment. And it is really unfortunate. Yeah, the, the JavaScript spas are are the problem areas, the problem children that, that I've experienced with as well, that uh, there's there's not a great solution for having a single source collection to deploy and then a, a separate configuration. It's just, it seems like there's a disconnect there still. So that that's where we've actually found, um, you know, using Docker containers, uh, is so fantastic because when you can build it out, you can build it out with that dev level baked into the container, but then pass in a configuration at the runtime that allows you to override those settings with environment variables or whatever you might whatever you might want. Yeah, exactly. And when you have a backend application, that's perfect where I can inject those environment variables and point my ASP.NET to the correct connection string. The hard part about uh, spas is they're actually running in the browser. So they're not running in the context that is that Docker container on the server. So one of the techniques that I love to do here is I'll put a Kubernetes ingress controller in front of all the containers so that when the spa lights up and it needs to communicate, it believes that it's communicating with the same domain. And the ingress controller just says, oh, hey, that starts with API. Let me send it to that uh, container. It doesn't. Let me send it to this container. And at that point, I'm all on the same domain. And so I don't have that client-side configuration anymore. All of the configuration then stays server-side inside my ASP.NET app. And all of it can get injected in as I spin up my container. So you mentioned testing and pipelines and microservices all within the span of just a few sentences. That's one aspect that I've been digging into a little bit more here lately are post-deployment tests and and smoke tests and validation testing and that type of thing. I've been heavy into unit testing and integration testing of sorts uh, for a number of years and, and really enjoy that level of satisfaction, that level of comfort and security in knowing that the application uh, at least functionally does the thing I expect it to do. It's the testing that it does what I expect it to do once it's deployed. Do you have any particular experience or, or preferences on on how to test after deployment? Yeah, and I so love that metaphor. I've seen some stories where you know a box of diapers shows up on the porch every day. And if ever the box of diapers doesn't show up, now we know something's wrong. The hard part is I'm making a purchase every day. And so it's like, well, how do we test the happy path but not cost money? At the very least, what I love to do is after I deploy the app, I will just go curl the homepage and make sure I get back a 200. The added benefit there is not only am I kind of smoke testing the entire process, but I'm also jitting my application at the same time. Um, And so that's really cool. 
uh, the next level up from that is let's spin up some Cypress tests that allow us to kind of take that happy path. Let's go test those critical functions. Let's go validate that they can add something to their shopping cart, that they can log into the portal, that, you know, the moment those things are broken is the moment that we're sunk. And we may not even know because it's not that our traffic is behaving badly. It's just that there is no traffic. (laughs) And so to be able to validate those in production, you know, at the moment of deployment, and then maybe even periodically throughout the day, can we create these non-destructive tests that will just flex that our system is working? Add that together with metrics that we may be pulling out of Prometheus and visualizing in Grafana to be able to kind of see the health of our system. And in time, we'll learn what normal looks like. And then we can create alerts to say, that isn't it. We need to take corrective action here. What if, hypothetically, we didn't have the Grafana dashboards, we didn't have the <laughs> metrics baked in, where do, you, where do you start? Where do you, how do you decide what the most important thing is to start collecting, to start researching, to start analyzing? The first thing I'll usually start with is capturing exceptions. I like to log exceptions and I like to also email exceptions because if my log fills up, I still want to get a message. If my email doesn't deliver, then I still want to have a log of what happened. That seems like the lowest hanging, easiest fruit to grab because if an exception happens, then something's probably wrong. You know, it does take a little bit to code that way to say exceptions are exceptional. (laughs) But at the point where we can capture exceptions in all of the things, then every, I don't know, every month or two, we can go look through the exception log and we can go find the one or two or three things that are the majority of the traffic in the logs. Let's go fix those things. And now the logs are half as full. Let's do that, you know, five times. And now our site is really humming. And that wasn't a whole lot of burden to do. It's just, you know, the uh, really naive, simple approach is I create a new table in my database called exception, which makes all kinds of things really mad sometimes. But uh, so sometimes I'll call it log and I'll just grab all of the exceptions. Maybe I'm pulling this out of iLogger or maybe I'm pulling it out of, I lost the name of the term in ASP.NET that does that. I rig it up at the beginning of a new project and I forget it, the S something. And so I'll just grab all the exceptions that go in there and fling them off into this table. And that's a really, really easy start. The next thing is running that post-deploy curl the site. Because at that point, then I know my site is running after the deployment. It's really easy to deploy. And I type out a web config or I type out an app setting. And so it just isn't able to, to start at all. In time, I like to create a status page where I can hit it and it will show me um, I've connected successfully to the database, I've connected successfully to the object store, I've connected successfully to other microservices, and that status page, then I can hit that as I start up my app. And then maybe periodically I can hit that as well. And if I get a 200, then I know my uh, application is still running and all of its dependencies are running. And if I don't get a 200, now I know I need to take corrective action. And I can do that, hopefully, before I've shut down the old version. One of the coolest things that I did when I was uh, starting off with the project was I put up a dashboard 
on a big monitor in the developer cave. And executives knew that they could walk in and if the board was green, then everything was good. And if there was any red, then they knew something was bad. And once I educated the business on, you know, green is good, red is bad, then there'd be some executives who would walk in and go, oh, today's a good day. Awesome. Way to go. And I'm like, you know, that is really, really cool to be able to build that visibility, to deliver that business value in a very non-technical way to those users was really exceptional. So with, uh, with testing, how would you go about testing if you've got microservices or just services in general, if we don't want to label them, uh, but they're interconnected in some way, how can you do the testing with those interconnected pieces? Good call. Because a microservice in the absence of the other services may or may not be adding value. That's really cool. The first step is to unit test and then maybe end-to-end test that microservice to get a feel that that microservice is doing the job that I expect of it. But it is in a vacuum. So really quickly, I like to do end-to-end tests where I start at the front end and I work all the way back through the happy path, through all of the services and all the way back. And at that point, I've documented that each microservice is at the very least alive. Um, Testing those integrated pieces is really cool. Um, The hard part there is that we may have scenarios where it's either costing us money or we're generating additional traffic. You know, we don't want to place an order or maybe we want to place an order, but it's to a test customer that everyone knows not to ship the package to, or maybe they are shipping the package to them sometimes. So maybe we can't do an end-to-end test with that one piece, but can we get into the shopping cart and put the buy button and get to the point where it's prompting for a credit card and then abandon it. You know, can we get as close to uh, proving that happy path works end to end as possible for those critical business pieces that need it? Where do those tests belong? Is that a, a separate pipeline that runs nightly or hourly or weekly? Because I know that the the story of of Netflix and Chaos Monkey that they let the the Chaos Monkey run wild during the day while the engineers are technically awake and working so that they can recover effectively from the the pain that they're self-inflicting. How do we make sure that we're, we're testing the right things at the right time, that we're not incurring additional cost, um, that we're not causing additional pain in a, uh, in a 2020 world? If the tests can run quick enough or they can run non-impactfully enough, then I would say run them on a cron every hour or every few hours, and that will give you the most insight. But to your point, it's like, okay, so I want to run these tests, but do I do it after any deployment or do I do it only after the front end deployment? Well, what if I change my backend service? How do I validate that that's the case? What I like to do is run them in a non-prod environment end-to-end before I deploy each piece into production. But sometimes even that is too much to be able to um, get a speedy delivery into production. Ideally, we can get these tests to run in a few seconds, a dozen seconds, you know, maybe 30 seconds. And if so, then we can run them as frequently as we want to. We're definitely not testing all of the features and all the configurations, but just validating the, the happy path, the really expensive pieces. Yeah, the, the critical paths are the ones that you really want to focus on for any test you're doing against a live system, right? The 
all of the any of the other tests that you want to do, you could have tens of thousands of tests that you want to run maybe against uh, like a staging or a test environment. But against prod, you only want to run the 100 or 200 tests that, that are really, really critical. If this thing goes down, we need to know about it, right? Yeah, that's one of the hard parts about testing is 10,000 green tests don't tell you very much, but 10 failing tests tell you a lot. We want to make sure that the, that the tests are providing value. We want to make sure that they're executing quickly. But if we're doing the full end in the full system test, the exercising the complete overall system, we don't want to necessarily wait for that to complete during a, uh, a quick dev loop, right? Right. Especially when we're in microservices, it's really cool because I can kick off all of the unit tests for that microservice and nothing else. And that gets me a speedier answer. But my other rule of thumb is that breaking the build is not the cardinal sin. Leaving the build broken is the cardinal sin. Yes. I would hope that the build server is doing more than the developers because, you know, here in 2020, the build server is cheaper than the people. <laughs> so get it to do all of those bigger things. And yeah, if it catches a typo that I made that I forgot to fix before I committed, yeah, that's fine. I'm doing that in my own personal branch anyway. Once my branch goes green, now I'm PRing that into place. And now hopefully that will go smoothly from here on. But don't fear a broken build. Don't like, you know, do this Herculean effort before you do a pull request just to learn more from the uh, CI server. So we've uh, talked about a lot. We've talked about uh, ASP.NET of uh, uh, .NET 5. We've talked about uh, GitHub actions. We've talked about testing. Um, where, what are some resources you might direct people to if they're trying to get in, in, uh, in, into any of these topics? What's really cool is uh, our industry is moving really, really fast. What's kind of a bummer is our industry is moving really fast. <laughs> By the time we get to the dead tree edition, oftentimes the technology has moved on. So it is a certain amount of drinking from the fire hose. Part of why I love speaking at conferences is because then I get to attend conferences. And so for me, that's where I get to learn new things. That's where I got to uh, get familiar with Flux stores and get the hang of Redux and uh, Vuex. That's where I got to learn how Svelte is different than Angular and React and Vue. That's how I got to uh, learn MOQ, uh, Mock, the unit testing framework. And so um, go. the cool part about attending conferences is you can go to the conference and you have an hour with that talk, um, with that topic. And at the end of the hour, good, bad, or indifferent, you now know a little bit more and you have hopefully the search terms if you want to go further, or you've only burned an hour to get to the point where you're like, you know, I'm good with that. One of my favorite talks was a talk at uh, KCDC where I went into the talk and they explained all the things. And I'm like, I totally get the premise of this topic now. And I also completely get that I don't need this at all. And so I can close the door on that topic <laughs> and uh, go back to the things that I need to do. If you're more into reading, a lot of good blog posts come on dev.2 or on Medium that explain really cool terms. In time, you'll learn the Twitter handles of the people that are really uh, famous or prolific in this space, and you'll be able to catch on to things. Scott Hanselman was the first one that I attached to that way. 
Scott Goo doesn't blog very much anymore, but you know he had some great stuff back in the day. And so find the uh, luminaries in the space that you want to get into and start finding the posts that they do or the videos that they do. Or now Twitch makes it so much easier, so much more accessible to watch people code. I really learn by watching. So conferences and Twitch streams for me are a really, really good source for learning. But if you learn by reading, then Dev.2 and Medium and other blogs can be a really great source for up-to-date information on the things you're looking for. On a similar note, but possibly different, uh, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their careers? Great question. Um, One of the things that I found, this was a book that I found really early on in my career. It's called The Design of Everyday Things. And it is in the dead tree section, (laughs) but it's about empathizing with users. And what I love is the cover of the book is has a picture of a water pitcher on it. And if you can imagine a water pitcher where you have the handle and um, you can grab the handle and use that to pour out of the water pitcher. Well, in this particular pic- uh, picture, the uh, handle for the water pitcher was on one side and the nozzle for the water pitcher was on the same side. It talked a lot about designing things in a way that makes it easy to consume and at that point, you know, that really helped me level up with the empathy of my users. One of the things that um, uh, that was really brilliant when I figured it out, and it was given to me, I love it. I am not my target user. I can use the systems that I build, but they're not built for me. So can I step outside my paradigms, my perspectives, my um, my assumptions, and step into the paradigms and perspective and assumptions of my users and kind of walk around in their world for a while. Let me learn the terminology that they really cling to. Let me learn the perspectives that they have. Uh, One of my users really liked to drag their mouse in a circle around the thing before clicking it. And so, you know, just to get to see them do that is brilliant because now I can empathize with them and I can build systems that work the way they expect it to work. Now, it's not just enough to make it work. But at the point where it works the way they expect it to work, then it's magical. And it's a really powerful system that they can really engage with. Where can our listeners go to follow you um, and maybe keep up with, you know, whatever it is that you're working on? I tweet a lot on Twitter. My handle is Rob underscore Rich. And I'll do a lot of tweeting about conferences where I'm speaking. I always publish my slides and my code examples before I take the stage. So by the time you see that tweet, you can go grab my talk and you can go grab the resources right there. Uh, A lot of my content is up on GitHub, github.com slash robridge. And then my site, robridge.org, is kind of that hub of all the things. So that'll include all of my speaking engagements, all of the references to GitHub and other things. There's a reference from there to email me and also to uh, see my Twitter handle. Well, all right, Rob. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Definitely. This has been so much fun. That was Rob Richardson. Rob is a software craftsman building web properties in the ASP.NET, Node, React, and Vue. He's a Microsoft MVP, published author, frequent speaker at conferences, user groups, and community events, and a diligent teacher and student of high-quality software development. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. 
This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Thank you.